Okay, uh, let's turn to John chapter 9, and uh, starting at verse 13, and going through to 41. So last week we did 12, 11, 12 verses, actually, in, in a session. Today we're actually going to do the remainder of the passage, but we're not going to go verse by verse today like we normally do. We're just going to talk sort of more uh, thematically to the passage. So we'll read uh, chapter 9 in John, starting at verse 13, okay? So let's stand and read the word like we normally do. So, verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on that day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, Well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and that he had received sight, until they called the parents of that very one who had received his sight, and questioned them, saying, is this your son, who, do you, who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, Well, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he sees, and we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. He then answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? And how did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciples. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You are born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, Well, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Pray together. Lord, we are grateful for this fantastic passage in scripture and it's loaded with stuff we could spend um, 
four or five different weeks just looking at various verses in here and the topics within them. But for the choice of the choice for, of um, moving forward, Lord, in the, in the book of John and for uh, trying to to gain clarity, we've decided to take a big passage at a time. And because it's big, I ask you for clarity and that the part, parts of the passage that highlight the theme today, that you allow that to happen. And you speak through me, through your spirit and truth and in, in wisdom. So I pray for clarity, for focus, and for most of all, your, your word to do its work in our lives. And uh, may, Lord, if we're blind in any areas of our lives today, that we will be open to see your truth for what it is. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Callie and I have been talking over the last couple of weeks, um, having a spiritual conversation over this question. This question. If God truly was a loving God, as people claim he is in the Christian world, and he truly wants to be known, why doesn't he make himself more obvious to people? If he's truly a loving God, why doesn't he make himself more obvious and reveal himself? Why doesn't he act in more tangible ways and more supernatural ways in our world to make it evident that he actually exists? Because um, people's argument is that if he was truly loving, he would, he would make it obvious to all of everyone. What is presupposed in that question is, is that if someone had greater revelation, that would result in more faith. So the right behind that question is this, if God was truly wanted to be known, surely if he revealed himself to all these people in supernatural, supernatural tangible ways, it would lead more people to Christ and more people to know who God was. That's the logical conclusion behind that question. Well, I've thought about that question in the past, and I've, been, I've wrestled that with that question over the last couple of weeks, as Callie's brought it to my attention, and um, was even thinking about John chapter 9 being an answer to that question. But John chapter 9, as, we start, as I started the passage this week, revealed, um, revealed some things to me about the answer to that question, and I want to draw that out to you today. And obviously, last week, sermon was the healing of the blind man and we looked at the first 12 verses and what that meant and today's a continuation of that but you think of that miracle think of that miracle the, the man himself says in verse 32 it's never been heard that anyone born blind has ever had their eyes opened that's what the man says Jesus in the presence of those people 2,000 years ago did this miracle and yet only one person that day in his supernatural, tangible action, one person comes to know who God is that day. That means that everyone else who witnessed the miracle ignored the miracle that happened. Now remember from last week that that's an amazing thing because in the Jewish belief system that existed back then, if someone was, they believed that healing of blindness was the only power accessible to God. So never in history of Israel had it ever been done, but the Old Testament scriptures said, if this actually ever occurs, only God would be the only one to ever heal someone from the blind. And a, a sign of the Messiah to come was going to be people who are blind were going to now see. So remember their worldview, they expect only God can do this and only the Messiah will do it through his power. And here Jesus does it and nobody comes to faith. And yet their worldview is 
These are the signs they're waiting for as, in, in their own faith system. And remember, Jesus' own uh, um, attribute, he called himself the light of the world. Again, in the Old Testament scriptures, light was something associated only with God and associated only with the Messiah to come. So here he had himself calling himself the light of the world, and they believe that God and the Messiah are the only ones who's ever going to heal the blind and has the power to do so. He's acting in a supernatural, tangible way, and what happens? Not a single person believes in him, according to John, except for one man. Again, so this, the behind that, the initial question I asked, or I asked, if, group, if God truly wanted to make himself known, why doesn't he act in more supernatural ways? Well, in this passage alone, he does. The people are expecting the Messiah to act with signs and supernatural things, and nobody believes in him. So I want to look at the four, uh, the, the four responses of different groups to him, and what was in their own pre-existing nature that wouldn't allow them to believe the very things they were seeing. What was going on, and how that relates to us today. Because you would have thought that with such a wonderful miracle and such a wonderful day that everyone would be singing for joy and excited for this man whose life was completely transformed. And people would give their lives to Christ that day because of the proof that they saw in that miracle. So let's look at the first four groups, these groups. And uh, like I always do, um, I was planning on doing this whole message today in one sermon. And after studying it last night and this morning... I might have to do a two-parter, so I might get three of the groups accomplished today, and next week we'll accomplish the fourth. And I'll di- I've divided them into four categories, and we'll see how we go, and if I can get through all four, I will, but if I feel like it's too much in one day, we'll, we'll, leave, the, we'll leave the fourth to the end. But the four groups are the general public, the response of the general public, the second group is the response of the leaders, the religious leaders. Uh, the third group is the response of the response of family members, and the fourth will be the blind man himself. So we have rejection from the general public, rejection of, from the religious leaders, rejection from the family, and then acceptance of the Lord through the blind man. And the blind man's, uh, like I said, it could be a sermon all in itself because it's quite uh, quite significant. All right, so let's jump in, starting at John chapter 9, verse 13. Notice that it says there that they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. The they are the ones defined in verse 8 before as the neighbors. And within the neighbors, there was also in verse 9 a group called the others. So the people who brought uh, the blind man to the Pharisees were the neighbors who knew this man and others who were familiar with him in the community. We don't know how closely associated they were with him, but he was a blind beggar, so likely they didn't have too much to do with him. But they, they, people did know him, and people, he was known in the neighborhood that he, was, he lived in, or the streets that he begged in. But there's a division amongst these people, and some think that this is the same man that was born blind has now been healed. Other, so they're positive in the identity. It's the same guy. Same guy born blind is now the healed guy. But for some of the group, these neighbors and others, they actually believe that a different man. He looks like somebody. He's got like a double, he's got like a twin that almost exists within the culture. But actually, this is not the same guy. So there's this division amongst themselves of whether this is a legitimate healing or not. So they're not able to come to a conclusion of 
uh, and make up their mind over if this formerly blind beggar is now the same guy that sees, um, and they don't know if this guy is now the, the same guy that's walking the streets of 2020 vision, um, but they decide to resolve the issue by taking it to the Pharisees, and we see that in verse 13. And these Pharisees, of course, are the religious leaders of the day, the spiritual authorities, and so for them it makes sense, because they can't come to their own conclusions about the guy, that the religious leaders should weigh in, because they would, they would, whatever they say would go. They had the final say and figure out his identity. And this case would have been a great interest to the Pharisees, because they are, um, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day, which was the, for us would be our Saturday. And so, as a regular Jew, um, you knew that the Pharisees' interpretation of the law of Moses was that there was no works to be done on the Sabbath. And this healing that Jesus did on the Sabbath was against their, their law, and therefore he was a violator and would need to be punishing. And probably the man who received the healing, too, was a, was a Sabbath violator because he accepted the healing on that day, and he shouldn't have done that. So this case is of great interest to the Pharisees if they hadn't heard about it already because um, they would have a lot to say about the matter, and so these, these neighbors and others would be, would be interested in their, on their verdict of the situation. But for me, it's significant that the case even went this far. Why would that be? Well, in verse 10, before, like we saw last week, they said to the man, how then when your, were your eyes opened? So the people are wondering about his identity. Go to him and say, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and said this, the man who was called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and I washed and I received sight. <laughs> All the tangible evidence they needed to know that Jesus was the healer and, and that this guy was the same guy who was born blind. All of that evidence was right in front of them and they had seen the physical transformation that taken place in this guy's life. But it wasn't enough for them to have any more interest in pursuing Jesus anymore. There was tangible evidence right in front of them through the transformation of this man physically that Jesus was legitimate and attested through their scriptures that he was God and their Messiah. This is clearly God at work, clearly the Messiah in their presence. But it still wasn't enough for them to believe on their own, on those terms. The evidence didn't speak loud enough for them. And so that's why, again, they became dependent on others the religious leaders to tell them what truth was in the matter. And I would suggest this still happens for us today. When people are looking for tangible evidence of God in this world, and they want to know, well, how do, is there any proof of the existence of God? I would say, look at the people who are Christians who've been transformed by Jesus Christ. What's tangible evidence? Look at Christian people who've been transformed by Jesus Christ. For some, that's in the form of physical healing. People have seen people who, or know people who have been healed, and those healings will lead to spiritual transformation and faith. Because if they're healed supernaturally, where, where modern medicine, say, couldn't intervene with things like cancer, that, that is often a wake-up call that there's a creator out there. But not, not everybody has physical healings, but they do have other forms of healing and transformations that occur. For example, people with emotional issues or psychological issues where they've had no hope or they've had a lot of pain in their life or tragedy, they move from places of, say, suicide to hope. 
They move from places of anger to compassion. Maybe they've been drunk for years and never had given any hope, and now they're sober through the transformation with Jesus Christ's relationship with them. Perhaps they, um, they've suffered for years of marital issues, heading for divorce, and through the transformation of Christ in their lives and the marriage, they're thriving. For others, it's anger and unforgiveness, and now they have lives of gentleness and compassion and self-control. It's interesting, I, I went to uh, Fort Smith to help my mom move, which you guys know about because I had to leave to, to, to help her. And I hadn't seen my, he was my best friend in high school. And uh, we kind of lost touch over the last 15 years or so for various reasons. And I thought, you know what, I need to look him up because I haven't seen him for 15 years. So I go to Fort Smith and I phone him the night before I'm going to leave. And I say, hey, buddy, can I come over? Can I, can I meet you? And he's, he's excited. I said, sure. And I, uh, when I walked in, I saw him. And then we arranged a coffee date and went back to his house later that night. And uh, we were talking about how life was going, and I said, by the way, I said, uh, I said Mitch, I said, okay, I'm a Christian now. And you know, in the very first thing he said to me, he goes, I knew something was different about you. And I said, how did you know? He goes, Andrew, you, were, you used to be so intense, and there was a peace in your eyes and a peace in your like, body language that I knew something had changed. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's so when you talk about like the emotional, no, physically, like, there's an emotional pain in my life back then that made me so angry and intense that my physicality showed it in the outward, my outward expressions of my body. And he, he said there was a peaceness and calmness about you. I got that uh, too again. Uh, I went to take violin lessons about three years ago from a guy in Mackenzie Town. And I walked in and uh, about after the first two lessons, he said to me, are you a Christian? I said, why? He goes, I could just tell. <laughs> and I was like, you could just tell? I'm like, yeah. Now what's interesting though, about all these comments, is there's nothing to do with me trying harder or me, or me be, becoming a better person. I was an absolute disaster. And the people that knew me before knew exactly what I was like. If you were a husband, or a father, and you had a daughter, the last person you'd want her to be around would be me. Because your daughter would be in danger. Um, yeah, and uh, the transformation was been unbelievable, but again, it had nothing to do with me. And I didn't even want God in my life. I was a rejecter of Him. But He kept pursuing me, and, then the, and I, I am where I am now. But again, these, uh, this, uh, this physical transformation, the evidence of people who have been given no hope, and now they, they, there's hope in their lives, we can see this as tangible evidence that God at work. And I want to show you this video. This video was, uh, was, un was unbelievable to me, um, because Rabbi Zacharias is going to speak to us for three minutes about an experience he had about... And he, uh, Angola prison is the most deadliest prison in the United States, in Louisiana. He'll explain the details, and uh, he's going to give a testimony of what happened in Angola prison, and you're going to see the physical transformation that occurred there. So let's listen to this. It's, it's just wonderful. I'll go hit play. A few months ago, I had the privilege of seeing what happens when the image of God is marred. I spoke at America's bloodiest prison called Angola in Louisiana. 5,300 prisoners 
85% of them are on life without parole. 45 of them are on death row. And when my colleagues and friends and I arrived, I was to speak to them three times. I'd spoken in prison years ago and I'd never seen one like this. In this prison, when they check you in as a prisoner, they give you a knife to protect yourself. You see, you're not gonna make it otherwise. Blood on the carpet, blood on the walls, blood on the ceiling. A big burly guy, his actual name is Burl Kane. He took over the wardenship of it and he told the governor, I'll do it on one condition. You let me do it my way. Governor said, this prison couldn't be worse. Do it. He came and put scripture verses all over the walls. He started Bible studies. He started a theological college. 90 of them are enrolled, getting a bachelor's of theology. They're never gonna get out of there. So they're studying for a degree. And I was told by one of them, instead of gangs of thugs, we now have gangs of pastors. <laughs> he said, you can bring the prettiest woman into this prison and let her walk in front of death row. There won't be one cat call, there won't be one whistle, there won't be one rude word. You are not allowed to use profanity in this prison, either as a staff member or as a prisoner. I spoke to an auditorium full of them, and it was piped into every room. And as I walked from death row, I was hard to handle. And then go to the death chamber, you know, just your whole paradigm is challenged. And you put your hand through the bars to shake hands with them, and you see the books they're reading. One guy had one of my books, put it through the bars, and said, I've been listening to you. Read it, please sign this for me. To one man in his 30s, I said, so you found Christ here? He said, yes, sir. I said, can I ask you a personal question? He said, yes. I said, how does it feel to know you're never going to get out of here? See, there's 60 dogs out there, hounds, half wolf, half dog, with a 7% greater capacity for sound. You break out of that prison, they'll get you in a minute. You're not going to get out of here. He said, you know, Mr. Zacharias, I don't think about that anymore because what I found here in Christ has given me a freedom I never had there. My greatest prayer is for my parents who think they are free, but they're still in bondage because they don't know Jesus Christ yet. He led the worship that afternoon. Interesting, eh? The most deadliest prison in all of the states. You would blood on the walls, blood on the carpets, and uh, <clears throat> basically no hope got checked in with a knife, and the warden starts teaching scripture, putting on the walls, getting Bible studies, and it's the safest prison in the USA. Now, I'm gonna sound completely intolerant when I say this in our culture, but I don't care. You will not put Islam, the teaching of Islam in that prison, and create those changes. You will not put Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Buddhism, nothing in that prison and create those changes. Why? Holy Spirit. That's right. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit when people receive Jesus Christ. And that's why when my friends see me change after 15 years, it's the Spirit of God in my life that has changed me, but I could never have done it on my own strength or taken self-help books or whatever. It wouldn't have done anything. And you, if you were asked those men probably in the interview before they got into prison, like if they had any love for God or cared about who Jesus was, they'd probably tell me that, you know what? Just like I would have uh, 15 years ago myself. Yeah. All right. So the first group, 
who watched, saw the tangible evidence of God were the neighbor's general public rejection, even though they saw the physical transformation in lives, we still have the same thing today. People can see Christian people and they pass it off as the change is something else. It's not Jesus that changed you, it's something else or someone else, but they sure ain't him. That nexus, that mystical belief system, etc., etc. They pass off what Jesus does when you tell them it's Christ, because he did. He says, Jesus healed me. When we talk about what, how come we've changed, they go, well, that's nice for you, but I'm good on my own, or whatever. Again, until we come to a place where we understand that Jesus is the transformer, and not like Optimus Prime, <laughs> but actually does the, <laughs> does the actual transformation, then that's where we, we're going to fall short. Okay, second group. Second group. The, the religious leaders. Now, we see these guys, the Pharisees, in verse 13. And there's an interaction with the Pharisees all the way to verse 41. So they, they dominate the passage here, their interaction. But how could these Pharisees miss the significance of what Jesus did in healing the blind man? I mean, if you went to them, they would have quoted you the scriptures about God being light the Messiah being light. They could have quoted you uh, that God was the only one that could heal a blind man. They could have quoted you these things. They would have taught you these things. They were the spiritual leaders, the spiritual authorities. How could they miss the tangible evidence of Christ? Well, there are many issues with their complexity, with, the, with their relationship with Christ. I'll suggest three main areas of why they had such a hard time with them. And the first one is uh, their previous experience with them. And we saw this in John, if you remember. Chapter 2, cleanses the temple. And, and they go up to him and say, well, by what authority do you do this? Chapter 5, they think he's a violator of God's law because he heals on the Sabbath. He heals a paralytic man. And remember, when you're, if you're a Jew, the reason why you're in exile, the reason why Babylon took you out in 586 or 587 BC, and the reason why Rome was in your nation now is because you were disobedient to Torah. You were disobedient to the Old Testament scriptures. And, uh, and God said, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you, if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. So they understood that the presence of foreign nations in their land was a, a result of not obeying the scriptures. Well, Jesus comes along and says, by the way, you can do this on the Sabbath. Well, to them, he, they're violating the very thing that put them in judgment in the first place. So to them, but remember, the whole issue was, though, that it was their interpretation of scripture. God never did say you couldn't heal on the Sabbath, but that's what they thought. And so that got them into trouble. But regardless, so they, they had a hard time with Jesus because he was a lawbreaker. And they already knew firsthand what lawbreaking meant. It meant judgment from God. They also determined he was a blasphemer, which is a stonable offense. Uh, if you claim to be God, if you claim to be equal to God, you'd be, you should be stoned. And he did that after he healed the paralytic man in, on the Sabbath. He claimed to be God. He said, that's why I did what I did, because I'm God. We claimed that he was uneducated and un untrained. We saw that in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, that he claimed that he was demon-possessed. They thought he was deranged. So the previous history and the previous experience made him write him off no matter what the tangible evidence was in, part, in, the front, in front of them. The, the second thing, though, was their existing pride and arrogance. And that's a big one. Their pride and arrogance and their hard-heartedness. While they had opinions of Christ, the Pharisees were also known for being a certain way. And this is what they were known for, according to Luke. Uh, it says, Beware of these teachers of the religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in synagogues and the head table at banquets, and pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. You see, they loved 
They love to be noticed. They love to be seen. They love to be respected. They loved that people looked up to them as religious authorities. They were totally all for this kind of thing. And Jesus comes along and he starts stealing their audiences. Because his teaching had authority that they'd never heard of before. And the way he, his character just made people flock to him. And they became jealous and fearful. And you know what? We even see another, another issue with these guys. Why they were fearful. We're going to come to this later on, um, probably later in the summer. Jesus heals Lazarus from the dead. And listen to their comments after they know about the resurrection. I mean, they, they, they see him walking the streets after he was proclaimed dead. And listen to their comment. He said, 1148. What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs, just like the healing of the blind man. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, under Roman authority, the Pharisees were allowed to be the religious leaders and had a lot of leeway. They, they allowed them to exist and, and, and function the way they, they were. And Jesus now is coming along and they thought if people accept him as king, it's going to cause a revolt. Because of the revolt, the Romans are going to come and squash it, and we're done. We lose all our power, all our respect, all our authority. And they were terrified that Jesus was going to do this. So because of this, they were unwilling to see, even though they saw the signs, they were unwilling in their hard-heartedness to come to believe that uh, he was legitimate. You know, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, the Pharisees even told them to, he even offered to pay cash to the people to spread a lie regarding the resurrection. I mean, that's how, that's how uh, they, they just refused to believe. Actually, I think that wasn't Lazarus. I think actually that was when Jesus was resurrected. Yeah, anyway. At some point, they spread the cash to, to make sure that no one would ever proclaim the resurrection. I think it's actually a Jesus' event, not Lazarus's. But see, they didn't look at the char- they didn't base um, everything on character. They based it on title, position, authority. And don't we have that in the same in our religious leaders today? A lot of churches are filled with people that love position, love title, love authority, even have long flowing garments and robes that just basically say, "Look at me." We, I mean, we, I've heard of pastors that like to wear the white dog collar. That goes straight on their shirt because they want the title. They want to be noticed as everyone by, as reverend or whatever. I mean, Jesus had nothing to do with that. The third issue with these guys, though, and this is a big one, is I call and this is those of you who know Lauren Schultz that's come here. I'm going to use his word. They had Scheif interpretations of scripture. So he's German. So Scheif means this: if something's a little bit off, it's Scheif. Right? So if you're hanging your curtains and it's crooked, you're like, that's shife, all right? So they had shife interpretations of scripture. And what happened was they had, tra- they had their own man-made traditions and their versions of scripture that trumped, the old, that, that trumped the scriptures. So if you were to read something in the Law of Moses, they would go, yeah, that's true, but let me tell you how this is to be lived out. In, in our, and they would give extra laws on top of it. And they made those supersede the, the laws or the, 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 the Old Testament. So it was their own man-made traditions and their own church traditions that trumped everything in that culture. And so that's where they're at. And that's why the healing of a blind man produced a theological dilemma for these guys. 
And we see that dilemma in verse uh, 15 and 16. Just look at it with me. Okay, so here they are. Their, their, their scriptures say you can't do any healings on the Sabbath. And look what happens. The Pharisees gas the guy in for an interrogation. And they say this to him. Uh, they, uh, they were asking him how again he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, well, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division amongst them. The first huge rationale, of course, was because God was the one who gave Israel the law and instituted Sabbath observance, it was incomprehensible then for anyone who spoke on his behalf to violate the very law he established. The second group's argument then was, well, if Jesus was truly a sinner, as evidenced by his breaking of the Sabbath, where did he get the power and authority to perform such a healing of this magnitude? So there's this controversy because it's like, how, how can this possibly be? If he's truly a sinner, then he wouldn't be able to do this. Second group, of course, was closer to the truth and they were onto something, but they never came to the conclusion that they needed to, that Jesus was a Messiah and he was God in the flesh. And the sad reality was, is, um, their problem with Jesus was largely in part because of their loyalty to their, to their church traditions and their own interpretations of the word. And that got them into trouble. And the Old Testament never said you couldn't do acts of healing on the Sabbath and never permitted um, acts of mercy either. Or never failed to permit acts of mercy. But again, because they made their man-made traditions supersede the Old Testament scriptures, they had a hard time with Jesus and their blood to the truth about him. And it made them say crazy things about him and made them do crazy things in relation to him. And I'll show you the three crazy things they said. And what's funny is, and you, you can relate to this, have you ever had conversations, I was one of them by the way, so I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but uh, I'd be this guy 12 years ago, 15 years ago. But if you were to ask people about what they know about God, they'll tell you, I know this, I know this, I know this, and they'll tell you what they confidently know. Well, the Pharisee did the exact same thing. Look in verse 16, what they know about God. They say, um, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So the first thing they say is, we know he's not from God. He's merely a, a, basically a satanic guy. Verse 24, it says there, uh, when they interview the man a second time, they say, give glory to God for we know that this man is a sinner. So they're confident he's a sinner. And then in verse 29, they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he's from. So they know that God has not spoken to Christ. They're fully confident in those three things. They know in verse 16 he's not from God. They know he's a sinner. They know God hasn't spoken to him. So they're saying crazy things because their church traditions have superseded their, their not, um, the word of God. Secondly, they start doing crazy things in terms of their actions. Uh, they have three interrogations to try to catch Jesus uh, out and to catch this blind man. The first interrogation is in verse 15, when they call the blind man in for an interview. Second one's the parents in verse 18. And the third one is to a second interview with the blind man in verse 24. But all of these things from, led them to a failure to see the tangible evidence right before their eyes. And they were blind to the identity of Christ. And it's the same reason why people don't see the tangible evidence today as well. Pride and arrogance. Fear, those are driving forces. And again, church traditions and their interpretation of the Bible. 
All those things create um, blockages to uh, believing truth and understanding Jesus for who he is. So don't be surprised if when your life is transformed by the Lord, if the religious leaders one day that you know start to come up against you. <laughs> if, you start, if Christ starts to get a hold of your life, don't be surprised if the religious authorities that, are, that you know or people you know, might come down on you and say, what are you doing with this Jesus guy? Because they might be locked down in traditions of the church and be hard-hearted and self-righteous. One other story, and I, this is more dangerous to tell, but again, I'll say it because I have nothing to lose except my social standing in the community, <laughs> which, is, which is nothing, yeah, nobody cares. I'll show, you what, I'll show you how this works practically. Janice and I are about to get married, and uh, there was a push for the Catholic Church to be involved in our wedding because I was, uh, she was, came from a Roman Catholic background. And I'm, uh, we go see the priest, who's no longer the priest now, but he's a priest at the time. It was eight years ago. And uh, to talk about whether he could be involved in our service or not. And that was my opening to Roman Catholicism and the differences between them and Christianity. And that, as I studied it more, I realized the priest can't be involved. But thankfully, he came to me. He came into my gym and interrupted me during a training session. And he said to me, now watch this for church traditions versus scripture. He said to me, Andrew, are you willing to have your children baptized Roman Catholic and have them in the education system in, in Okotoks in the Catholic schools? And he showed me a document, and he said, if you check those two boxes, I'll participate in your, in your marriage ceremony. And I said, no. Like, just straight up, no, I said, we're not doing that. He said, okay, thank you. He said, I can't participate in your cer- marriage ceremony. I said, okay. He walked out. So it was great, because I, mean, I didn't have to do any more work to try to fight to get him out. He did it for me. But here's the thing. He then goes and knocks on Janice's door that very day, calls her out of her classroom and says, you can't participate in communion anymore in this school. <laughs> a year later, the peers of the, of, the, of, the, of the school she's teaching in vote her. There's a faith award, that the, there's a faith award in, the whole, in the whole division for who represents their life most like Christ in their, in their daily walk as a teacher. The school votes Janice as the number one candidate and gets elected, and at the award ceremonies gets the most Jesus-like person in the whole school, and the priest says, you can't participate in communion. Do you see the hypocrisy? Why? Because church tradition and their interpretation of the Bible trumps the truth of the scriptures, and they don't evaluate by character, they evaluate by, by authority, power, title, religious affiliation. I just, so when people say to me Roman Catholicism is the same as Christianity, I say, the Roman Catholics don't even believe that. I'll give you a story to show it to you. Because if they believed that I was included, I would have, he would have not walked out of my gym that day. Anyway, that's a, that's a, you see the issue with Pharisees with Jesus now though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're not going to have enough. Man, I'm at 39 minutes, and uh, we're only in group two. Okay, I'll finish with this group because it's important, and I'll do a separate sermon next week for, for, the, for the blind man. But the third group that rejected Jesus, despite the tangible evidence that he, um, that he uh, 
that he was God in presence and was their Messiah was the family. And we pick them up in verse 18 of 23. Um, why, why was it, what was it about them that, were, that made them divided over Christ? I mean, the, the Pharisees, it was pride and arrogance, their interpretation of Scripture and fear. What about these guys? Theirs was fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. Let's just look at it together in 18 to 23. Um, they call in the parents and they question them in verse 19. And they say this. They ask for three questions. Is this your son? So that's the first question. Question number two. Who, do you say he was born blind? And three, how does he now see? And his parents answered and said, We know that his, this is our son and he was born blind. But now he sees. But how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. So when it came to answering the first two questions, they had no problem associating themselves with the son. Yes, he was their son. Yes, he was born blind. But when it came to affirming how his healing took place and who healed them, they denounced them. No one, they threw him under the bus. No association with them. And verse 22 tells us why. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That tells me that tells me that the parents and the son already had a prior conversation. And he told his parents like, sometime before how he was healed. Because now when the Pharisees inquired about, to the parents about how he was healed, they said, we don't know. And why? For fear that they'd be kicked out of the synagogue if they confessed Jesus to be Christ. So the son was already saying, I believe Jesus <laughs> is the Christ, basically, or getting close to there anyhow. And the, and the, and the, the, um, the tangible evidence right before them that was that Jesus is, but for fear of losing their social standing in the community, they didn't want to be associated with Jesus or their son. And to be, let me just say this, that the synagogue in that culture, well, we don't have anything in our culture to symbolize this. Like, don't think of it, well, if we got kicked out of our church, that would be socially, that'd be socially hard to do, even though it would be. Our churches aren't equivalent to the social standing and the synagogue, what the synagogue represented in Jewish culture. Um, they had, that was a major part of their racial identity. Um, they had the feasts, the festivals, circumcision, food laws. But the synagogue was the, was the life of a Jew. That's where you, that was your community. So basically to be excommunicated was to be cut off from all social life and all religious affiliation within, within Israel. So again, we don't have anything like that. If you got kicked out of your church, you just go to another one. Or you, just, you still have a social community within your neighborhood. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, you were, you were disassociated from all forms of life and social life. It was a major, major thing. So you'd have a remainder of life in isolation, rejection, and be shunned. Like the Scarlet Letter, that movie where they had to wear an A, everyone would know that you were that person. And so everyone knew that if you were not part of the synagogue, they knew why, because you confessed Jesus to be Lord. So the parents had a choice to confess the Lord and own up to the fact that they believed Jesus was the healer and the one who changed their son's life forever, or they could shrink back and stay mute and for, for fear of being ostracized, and they chose the latter. So again, even though they had first-hand knowledge that Jesus healed their son, all the tangible evidence is right before them. The parents chose to reject the Lord for fear of lo losing social standing in the community. And again, I think we, that's very, very prevalent in our culture. A lot of people, know they, they, they believe there's a God, or they can see evidence of their God, but for fear of losing friends, family, 
religious cult, associations, whatever, they just denounce the truth because of fear of rejection. And it's a powerful weapon in keeping our mouths closed, even as Christians. It's a powerful weapon. If, I were, if you were to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, why don't I engage more in conversation? This is the problem. You fear what other people think of you, and you worry about what, if you're going to maintain relationships and so on and so forth. Like when people ask us, like, you know, how is it that your family works so well? Or why does your marriage seem to be different or healthy? Or why do your relationship with your kids seem to be different? Do we kind of like fumble and stumble? Or do we just say, well, you know what? There was a, uh, the person of Jesus Christ has actually changed our circumstances and it provides a springboard. Or do we kind of fumble and bumble our way around and say, well, I've got a great wife, or I've got a great husband, or I don't know, it's just like we live in Okotoks and everything's awesome here and whatever. We're given lots of opportunities to, to confess the Lord in different ways. I'm not trying to use scare tactics, because that's not my mission in the church here. Um, but this is, a, this is written in scripture, so you have, to, you have to be able to see it. And I'll finish, I'll finish with this. In Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says this. Everyone who denies me here on earth, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Kevin edits the sermon, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. And not, now, you might, someone might say, well, Peter denied him and he's in heaven. Yeah, I get it. We all have denied the Lord in some way, in some form. And I'm not saying one time and you're out. But what I am saying, if you make it a practice in your life of denying the Lord, and you make it a practice of shutting away when opportunities present, then I wouldn't want to be you or me if I was doing that on Judgment Day. Again, we all are going to fail and beat ourselves up probably after for it. And again, it's not that we're perfect even in how we do it, but if we make it a practice in our lives as Christians to fail to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and the transforming power of our lives, I would not want to be us on the Day of Judgment. Just think about Matthew 10, 33. And he's not speaking to non-believers there, by the way, in context. On another note, though, don't be surprised if your own family rejects you because of the transforming, transforming, transforming work that the Lord does in your life. Um, it can come in various ways. And you know what's crazy? Even within the Christian community, this is true. Even if you have Christian parents, they can still, still struggle with your transformation. Can I tell you how that happens? There are, when people read Francis Chan and read David Platt and all these guys in the States, people think, wow, these guys are amazing Christians. They're so amazing and they're just so much like superior to everybody else. They're not. That's exactly what Christians are like in China or Iraq where they have to face their lives every day with persecution. These guys are what, these are normal Christians. They're not like super Christians. <laughs> it's because we have a version of Christianity in our culture that's watered down and so weak. That's the problem with our culture and our Christian church and, our, and the way we think. We have a watered-down version. So even within our culture, when we start to do radical things within our family, how we raise our kids, how we handle our marriages, our own Christian families and parents might even say to us, well, you're just like, you guys are like off your head. 
or you guys are crazy and they'll disagree with you because of the way you're raising your children or handling your marriages or handling your finances. Because again, the more Jesus gets a hold of our lives, the more radical we become in relation to everything else around us and everyone else around us. So if we get rejected by family, we're not the first ones in history ever to receive that. And I'll, I'll leave you with this, oh, I'll leave you with this verse to finish off. He says this, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife, and your children, brothers and sisters, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, the word hate there, by the way, doesn't mean detest. I like how this version, the translation of the NLT puts in comparison. Hate here means in comparison to, to, to like something more than the other. But he's saying when push comes to shove between choosing between me and your mom, you, me and your dad, me and your kids, me and your wife, love me more. And then you are truly my disciple. So again, we have the, the neighbors, the, the, the general public, having tangible evidence, rejecting for their reasons. We have the Pharisees, tangible evidence, rejecting for their reasons. We have the family, seeing the tangible evidence, rejecting for their reasons. When people say, there is no evidence of God, why does he make himself known? There is, but for these reasons that these groups show, we choose to reject the very thing that we see right in front of us, which is God at work. So I'll leave the sermon there, and we will next week um, look at the conversion of the healing of the blind man and see what it was in his life, what happened with his, with his experience with Jesus that led to a full-blown um, faith in him, and how the evidence that he saw actually propelled him to a life and uh, relationship with Christ.